makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Betu wastens chante waste nape choose up yellow le unkipiki he wastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and it's good. It's a good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. I send you greetings and strength. Yes, strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touched the earth at once. And I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. Uh, this is an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio in its 29th year broadcasting, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for, for archives. Our first guest, Micheline Duclef, is, excuse me, Micheline Duclef is a correspondent for National Public Radio's Science Desk and was part of the 2015 team that earned a George Foster Peabody Award for its coverage of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And prior to joining NPR, Michaeline was an editor at the journal Cell, where she wrote about the science behind the pop culture. Michaeline has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley, and master's in viticulture and enology from the University of California, Davis. She lives in San Francisco, and Michaeline's first book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, which is an instant hit on New York Times bestseller, talks about the relationship of Westerners of Occidental Europe and America that raises kids very much differently and very brand new in raising that from Dr. Spock on. And in this uh, interview with Michaeline Duclef is very revealing as to how different the majority of the world raises kids differently. And only 12% of the world raises the way the Western you, the Westerner, the listener, raise your children and so we're going to go right to that, and it's a great honor to welcome Michaeline Duclef to First Voices Radio. Gosh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to speaking with you. I'm going to 
resonate with what you said in the book, Hunter, Gather, Parent. And, you know, the praise for this book is apparent everywhere. Um, not to make a pun of a parent, but a parent is singular. When I talk about a parent, there needs to be two, as you talk about in your book. There's both sides. And I'm thinking that what a balance that is, that when we all come from this place, as you described in the book, is what children are we blossoming out of this? And mm. what led you in the first place to come to this idea because of your, in your daughter, Rosie, and your, I would say, your conversation you were having that wasn't being spoken to? Yes, exactly. You know, I think she was speaking to me a lot. So she was two when this first started. And, you know, we say she was having tantrums and getting very upset at me. Um, and I think I didn't know how to listen to her, I feel like. And I didn't know how to talk back to her in a way that she could understand. Um, and we just were in this constant power struggles and constant conflict. And the way I've been was raised, you know, I'm I'm white and middle class. And I was raised that like parents and children are supposed to argue with each other and, and get in this conflict. And that's kind of what I thought. Um, and this book is about a different way. And I, in my travels for my work, I'm a health correspondent for NPR. I went down to a small Maya village and the parents there, especially the moms showed me this different way of interacting with a child that wasn't full of anger and conflict. And I, I just, I, immediately wanted to learn more and I immediately gravitated towards it because it just felt so much better that it felt like the children that they were blossoming as you say were kind and helpful and genuinely wanted to work together with their with their parents and I to be honest with you I had never in my experience I had never seen anything like that and it was it was so powerful to me um and, and really, this book is about me trying to understand it and learn, learn it at 44. And I can't say it's perfect at all, but I can say that um, it, I've, I've, I've gotten better. I've gotten better at talking to Rosie and, and appreciating what she's saying and what she's bringing and trying to work together with her instead of like drag her along with what I think is best. So when you talk about Rosie in a sense, how programmed or reprogrammed we need to be to to quote unquote to unlearn what we had to in this society as I'm in, uh, coming from my culture and yeah. I had to adapt a lot do you see yourself adapting in return to what you learned from the Maya the the Inuit or in Alaska and the people in Africa yes absolutely and I think you are you were right. One of the the um, the Inuit women in Alaska, actually, Karina Kramer, told me she said that she thinks that Western culture, European American culture, puts these kind of goggles on our eyes that we that um, that make us see kind of children in a different way or other people in a way that's conflictual and kind of antagonistic. And what she says is that I'm learning to like take the goggles off and and see. Um, people and children in a way that's cooperative and that um, that genuinely creates a cooperative relationship. Um, so I feel like 
but she says, she told me, she's like, you're always going to veer back to this like Western way because that's the way I was raised. Um, but she said to me, and I, this just resonates with me so much. She said, you always have to just keep thinking about the relationship and like, is it going to improve the relationship or hurt the relationship? And so I've actually been trying to do that with all my relationships now, like even at work or my husband, you know, like is what I'm going to say hurt this relationship or improve it and, and connect more. And I think that's what I've been trying to adapt. That's what I've been trying to kind of unlearn is this way of relating to people that's conflictual and antagonistic, which I think kind of pervades Western society in a really kind of vicious way. You mentioned that 12% of the world's population is, is white. I would say that, right. but I use the word occidental. Yeah. Occidental, an influence somewhere oh. out of Europe, right? In America is that symptom right. of what Occidental people came from. But so when I'm feeling what you're reading here, I get a sense that we're all looking for that relationship as, as you intend in it. But yeah. something to go back to our core, but yet we are expected as modern day people to go to the programming coming from people like Dr. Spock, where the males were telling their mothers, their wives, their daughters, how to behave in a certain way, how to raise children. But yet yes. men were always outside the relationship of the core home that you talk about. Yes, I think this is something that happened like probably about 200, three, even 300 years ago in, in Europe, um, where there's this shift from the women raising the children together with the grandmothers and the aunts and passing down the knowledge from one generation to the next through um, help, helping each other, to this idea that there were like white men, some, mostly doctors, sometimes not, that they decided that they knew how to raise children better. And then they started writing these books about pamphlets even for orphanages or orphan hospitals. And they even explicitly said like this, this act of child raising has been too long left to women. And now men of sense must take it. And so they wrote these books, um, you know, like I say in the book, like nevertheless, the fact that women have been doing it for 200,000 years, you know, um, and they wrote these books and, and this was a time too in Europe where families were starting to separate from from their from the generations. So people would leave their families. And so they lost the grandmothers and the aunts in the homes. And these books turned into really the only information that or the the big, the vast majority of the information about parenting came from. And some of the advice is just ridiculous. And and yet we just we still hold on to it in, like you say, like modern you know, society holds onto this, this advice that comes from, you know, a surgeon turned sports writer from the 1700s about how to get a baby to go to sleep. Um, it's, it's ridiculous if you think about it. And, and the other thing is, we're told that this is the right way. This is the correct way. And if you don't do anything else, you're going to hurt the child or you're, you know, you're in the wrong, which is to me, just crazy, to be honest, just crazy, right? We've totally lost sight of like what it means to, to, to parent, I think, in many, in many ways. But we haven't because you were raised a different way, right? It's there. The flames are there, right? It's interesting. I think about the history of Europe 
where yeah. the witches and the so-called warlocks were, you know, that earth, the earth people, that connection was gone. Mm. And then it became a more monotheistic, patriarchal government, uh, religion, yes. science, and it became one of male dominated. Yes. And there's therefore the books. Um, so I, right. I, and I go back to our, our origin of all of us and I'm thinking, well, hunt, gather, parent may seem too literal, but yet when we were growing up in this society as, as Native people adapting to, um, knowing that there was a different way to think, but yet it, it's still, even in my age, I'm still adapting to a society, speaking its language, learning how to get along in this society by being aggressive, by, by mm -hmm. centering the eye in front. But as you mm. alluded to, I think, is that because we lost connection to nature, because mm. in, in nature, animals, the wind, the, the, the elemental consciousness that's out there is also showing us, but not teaching us. Therefore, we can't be taught, but we, like you mentioned, babies are alongside the mothers, yes. the fathers, and they're shown, you know, without yes. being instructed. Oh, this is so huge, right? Like... This idea that children learn only when you're telling them, when you're explaining and lecturing, um, this is so entrenched in, in our culture now that that's the way you teach children is with like these words, all these words. And other cultures value so much. One, one person said privilege. Many cultures give privilege to learning through observation. So instead of like in Western European American culture, we give privilege to, um, you know, instruction and telling people what to do. And the information comes from the teacher to the child or the parent to the child and learning through observation from what I've gleaned is, is more mutual. There's a, you go about your business, you do your your work and the child, like you said, is there with you and they learn at the pace that they need to learn at and they take the information in as they can and 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 slowly over time they acquire a skill and it's much less stressful for the child and I think for the parent-child relationship. You know, what you're saying is very important, the relationship that we all learn. I think we are born metaphorically. We learned a logic later about how to be competitive in a program, how to yes. be a parent, even the classes of parenting classes. And I, I remember relatives of mine going to the local college to learn how to be parents. Yes. But yet none of that could be applied because it seemed to be already instilled with the simple nod or wink. And the signals that you were talking about with the Maya family and I think it was comadida or comadida. A comadido or comadida. Yes, yes. Wonderful word. And then those words are feels like an accommodation on both parts. That's exactly right. Right. That there's mutual responsibility on both ends. I I'm helping you and you help and you're expected to help back. And um yeah, a comadido is and comadido is an, an amazing idea. Um, I was just speaking to a researcher in Los Angeles about it. And she was telling me, you know, it's, it's this complex skill, right, where you have to pay attention to, to what your parents are doing to the world, you have to know when you can help. So when you have the skills to help, if you know, and you have to know what to do. And, and it's a, and it's a skill that um, the Maya families start teaching the children since when they're babies. And slowly over time, they learn this skill. And it's this, this like, 
uh, art of pitching in and helping voluntarily and spontaneously, but knowing, knowing what to do. And also, interestingly, knowing what not to do. So knowing when not to help, when you might just be interfering, which I found really interesting, you know? (laughs) No, thank you for that. It's that in in some languages, indigenous languages, there there is this, this lexicon or this way of speaking that in our languages you're speaking about the energy then you're then you're describing mm. the energy so mm. that there's less subjectivity or less objectivity you see and Interesting. so and you find um in the sense that when i read the acronym weird western education western education and industrialized rich democracies give us that one <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is this is yeah, this is a something a Harvard researcher came up with because, like you said, Western white Occidental people make up about twelve percent of the Earth right now, of people-wise. Um, but they, but in terms of psychological research, they're like ninety-six percent. So all this psychological research has been done on these white people, middle-class white people, um, and and then a lot of times researchers say, well, that's how humans act, right? And then, but if you actually look those people actually behave really strangely in psychological experiments compared to many other many other cultures around the world in the, the small amount that they've been studied. And so he came up with this idea weird because European Americans uh, or European heritage people behave very weirdly in psychological experiments and they are not the norm they are not the universal like they think they are (laughs) they are they are strange and actually when it comes to parenting do incredibly strange things and it speaks back to what we talked about I think because of some of these books and you know um and yeah and and I think it's why we have so many problems that we have because like you say we're going against the core we're going against the core of the child Well, the extended family comes to mind where you do have your grandma, your grandparents, even grand great grandparents, but also there is a the sense of ownership that seems to be mm. that's my daughter, that's my son. But in the older traditional languages and cultures, there is no sense of ownership that that's not my daughter, but that's my younger sister, that's my younger brother. So you're oh. already born in, into equality, even if biologically you're the parents. So things start oh. equally, you see. So it's it's our responsibility to teach in that sense. But it, it also brings to mind how, you know, the examples you used in Hunt, Gather, Parent, um, how much praise is mm. needed to fill almost a vacant void because of how mm. we were programmed, as you say, a few hundred years, this has come into play in the, in the Occidental mindset government and permeates throughout the, the so-called culture. And now we are at a point where it seems like a realization of this mm-hmm. consciousness that you talk about, because I think it's a mm. consciousness in his book. Do we understand the language about how to even retain, sustain as you you are actuating in your life, how to sustain that? People want mm-hmm. instructions about how to, right? Right, right. Yeah, and right. and when I get back to the indigenous science uh, thought process, it's there is no conjunctive. I think it's a conjunctive, aware. There is no such thing as to be. Oh, interesting, interesting. So, 
So is it, it's an unlearning, like you say. It's so true. And you think about that, it's like it opens up and it frees you from the harness of restricted thinking that you are not ah. the center of the universe, but that the center of the universe is everywhere. Interesting. That, and that is what children need, right? They need that, that perspective. That magic that we talk about in the West, that magic, actually it means something like to, um, to use the tools of the earth properly. That's the magic. magic. So you're talking about the practicality within the book of what we can do rather than what we cannot do. I have to think about that. That is, <laughs> that is, <laughs> that is very, very good. Wow. Yeah. But thank you for this. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I just so, I, you know, as, as you see, I've been halfway through it and I'm looking forward to things like how do we turn out? How do we raise confident kids so that it will eliminate the greed, the, the need mm. for wanting Mm-hmm, the the mm-hmm. more relationship, even going beyond the human factor of anthropocentricity is is the fact that we need now these kids to be related to the earth once more. And yeah. again, that's another feeling I'm getting from this book to help us um, have peace with earth, so to speak. Yes, yes. That relationship badly needs um, mending. And, and what, when you talk about ancient cultures... That is is in us all. It's inherent. It's it's that empathy for Earth as well as human beings and all life. And once we get past ourselves as humans, then you can really read between the lines. And I think this is the most impactful book mm-hmm. to a- allow parents to see that maybe there is another way. You see, mm-hmm. and there is yeah. another way. Actually, as you mentioned, that twelve percent of the world, you know, is so restricted. But now. This is opening up and to regain that art, like you say, of, of raising kids. Yeah. Or rather, it seems today, kids are raising us now. Mm, yes, <laughs> that is that is very true. And I don't think they enjoy it. I really don't. I think it, it stresses them out. It's not, you know, they, they want us to raise them. They want, <laughs> they need us to raise them, you uh, know, and they, mm. and they, they need that connection. God. We all need connection, I feel like. I'm wondering, did you intentionally go to Maya country to find out how the differences in raising parents or did did that just come to you? What was that moment? I actually went down there. So, you know, I'm trained as a scientist and my whole life has been science, science, science. And then Rosie, the baby is what like dislodge that and was like, <laughs> there's something else out there she you know shook me um but I actually went down to the village this little village to study to look at attention and how children pay attention which actually if you think about accomodido is a lot about attention right looking paying attention which is something I think a lot of our kids are missing wide attention but when I got so it wasn't about really parenting at all um but when I got down there I just have to tell you like it like I said I was just I was just, I was knocked off my feet. I, I mean, for months, because like you said, there, it was the first time I really felt like there's a better way. There's a much better way. And um, like you say, like the, it felt like something deeper and something that was more, that was something core going on. And, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, I actually didn't do anything about it. It just kind of 
sat on it for months and months. And then I went up to the Arctic and I saw similar relationship between parents and children. And I saw, you know, I mean, it's very different and parents are very different, but you could still see that thread, that common thread. And then I started to really like wonder like, oh, maybe there's not only a better way, but maybe what we're doing is a really crazy way. <laughs> like, you know, and I started reading and I started, so that's how that came about. It really was um, not intentional. I kind of given up as a parent. I thought like, like I told you, like I thought that conflict was, I think a lot of parents feel like conflict is, is necessary between a child and a parent and what, especially the moms in the Arctic and the dads, you know, they taught me that no conflict is not necessary. And in fact, it's harmful. And to understand that sometimes language is the first weapon drawn in conflict that comes mm -hmm. early in societies that are often warlike societies. And, and right. I go back to what I see little boys playing with guns and, yeah. and little girls playing with dolls. But you think about toys in general. I didn't grow up with toys, not because by choice or that we were poor. We just didn't need toys in that sense to put in front right. of us to stumble over and the parents fall over these toys. Metaphorically, yes. it, that's what it is there for, to, to divert attention. Could you tell yes. us about the idea of toys? Yeah, this is so fascinating. So like you say, like 150 years ago, you know, across America and every culture, every class, you know, economic group, no kid had toys, you know, parents, ex maybe a parent would um, help a child make something like a doll, a baby, a little doll or something out of cloth or something very simple. Um, but otherwise, all parents thought, you know, children can make their own toys. Children can, you know, like go outside and get some wood and make something or some cloth or um, and so toys, toys, toys were really this creation of like Western psychology, consumerism, industrial revolution, you know, kind of this idea that parents needed to buy things for kids. And then as things got made on this mass scale, you know, it just exploded. And now there's this thinking that if you don't give a child a toy, like some, you're a bad parent, right? It's completely been baked into our concept of what parenting is, but, um, I, I I can't I can't tell you how how nice it is to just get rid of the toys. <laughs> Clears the space and the mind and and you know Rosie still plays with she still she figures out stuff to play with all the time and just she creates her own toys out of pillows and yeah. string and cloth and she does not need a, anything bought by wow. anything bought. The way you describe it it sounds like Rosie knows what's necessary and required basically what we are required as parents to let them show us what is necessary to raise them. Yes. Yes. This is so huge, right? That yeah. they have it in them and we have to watch, you know, one of the Maya moms told me, you know, we watched the child for a long time to figure out how this child's going to grow and what they need. So it's just like what you said, it all comes from the child and the, the parent is, is helping to enact that. One last thought. Let's go to Africa. You went to yes. Tanzania, I believe. And, yes. and there you learned that it's similar, even though the culture was different, it was a similar earth-based, I'd say, um, behavior about how to Huge. relate. Yeah. So there, there's this uh, culture called the Hadzabe, which are this incredible culture who have actively fought off change of their culture. 
So the Catholic Church, it's not in the book, but the Catholic Church has tried to modernize or whatever you want to settle, like all these things for hundreds of years in this culture has said, no, we are, we have been in this land for thousands of years and we have, we have thrived, you know, we have had very little, no famine, like we have, you know, there's been problems sometimes, but we have thrived. We do not need your rules. And in fact, in one of the books I have one of the, um, so they hunt with bow and arrow. They hunt, uh, um, they don't raise crops. Um, they forge tubers and baobao tree, baobao seeds. But one of the books I have, one of the elders says, you know, we could go buy a gun, but we choose not to because we know that the bow wolf hunt the exact right amount of animals. If we had a gun, we would shoot too many. It's an incredible, right? There's just this incredible relationship with the land is what I saw and felt. I felt it. Um, It was incredible people. And so then they have the same kind of relationship with their children, right? Where they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a watching, it's a, it's a give and a take. I'm going to help you, but you, I expect you to help the group, right? So there's always a looking inward to the group. Um, And that's where I really learned that I was being an incredibly bossy parent, that I was telling Rosie what, what to do way too often. I mean, out of love, I have to tell you out of love. Um, But like, like you said, like she could do it, she can do it. You know, I needed to step way back. And I think they kept making fun. Some of the dads kept making fun of me because I was just so bossy. I thank you for for this. I think it's very fascinating this hunt gather parent and and when you refer to ancient cultures and people probably want to as you you said how to yeah. you know change things now but there's also a saying that we can actually see how to relate to our children to see the results within this lifetime and therefore mm-hmm. we can see the seven generations forward. That's why the extended family, and and I yes. think that the nuclear is in a sense restrictive. Yes. And, and yes, we put old, old people in in the retirement homes, and we have separation from kids in classrooms, and there there's also this dividing and new psychologies coming out, and you know. But when it comes back to it, we all 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 are sitting around the fire, under mm. the tree, and speaking the same language without ever verbalizing it because we understand yes. deep down. Anyway, fi- final thoughts, Michaeline. You know, I, I have, I was very ignorant about indigenous cultures before I went on this to write this book and have traveled. And I just want to learn as much as I can about the richness on this continent and this land. And, um, because I think there's just enormous qualities of sophisticated knowledge and wisdom when it comes to parenting and just relationships. And we need it. The weird Western culture needs it um, (laughs) so much. (laughs) I thank you so much for having me and sharing your knowledge. And I could, I could talk to you forever about it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I, I think what you, one expression that I can give to this is that you help me to understand even further that now that children speak that quantum physics language that as adults in this society have made ourselves too logical and reasoned mm-hmm. without and remove the sacredness between children and ourselves as adults. And I think you and I hope if I could give you a review for that, that's what I would say about that. You linked us. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Just okay. wonderful. 
such an honor talking to you. And thank you to Hunt, Gather, Parent, what ancient cultures can teach us about the lost art of raising happy, helpful little humans. Micheline Duclef, thank you so much. And thank you, you too. Okay, bye. 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 And you're listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. That was an interview with Micheline Duclef, PhD, who authored Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans as she journeyed among three indigenous peoples in Alaska, in the global south, so to speak, in Mexico and uh, out in Africa. We're going to be listening to Amasakul in Tenere by Tenarawin, who are Tuareg people out of the northern tiers of Africa, the Sahara Desert. And they are the people who call themselves the free people, the Tuareg. And in this song, The Traveler in the Desert, I'm a traveler in the lone desert. It's nothing special. I can stand the wind. I can stand the thirst and the sun and know how to go and walk until the setting of the sun in the desert, flat and empty where nothing is given. My head is alert, awake. I have climbed up and climbed down the mountains where I was born. I know in which caves the water is hidden. These worries are my friends. I've always on familiar terms with them, and that gives birth to the stories of my life. You who are organized, you who are assembled, you who are walking together hand in hand, you're living a path which is empty of meaning. In truth, you're all alone. Tajantin fusene, tajavastini. 
by Tinarowin, and if I could spell that for you, T-I-N-A-R-I-W-E-N, of the Tuareg people, who are a free people who are called the blue people of for the indigo dye colored clothes, and traditionally free people on nomadic desert to northern of northern Africa. They are part of the Berber natives. Thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. Host is Teokas and Ghost Horse. We now go to an international story about Colombia, where the COVID pandemic seems to be once again on the rise, where it, on Friday, over 500 people died in one day as a result of COVID-19. It was the worst daily total since the pandemic began last year and is the equivalent of 5,000 people dying in one day here in the U.S. And while the COVID crisis continues, Colombia is witnessing mass protests throughout the country protesting the government's proposal for a comprehensive tax reform bill that will adversely infect, excuse me, impact working people. This past Sunday, Colombia's president, Ivan Duque, withdrew the controversial tax reform bill following four days of huge protests across the country. In a televised statement, he said that his government would work to produce new proposals and seek consensus with other parties and organizations. He previously insisted tax hikes were needed to respond to the economic crisis generated by the pandemic. But tens of thousands of people took to the streets in anger at the bill. Unions who organized the protest said it would disproportionately, if I said that right, disproportionately affect the the poorest people who were already struggling with the economic impact of COVID-19. This comes as indigenous communities in Colombia continue to face ongoing threats to their way of life. And a number of indigenous leaders were killed in recent months, which has concerned activists in Colombia and around the world. And one of them is Colombia physician and veteran human rights activist Manuel Rosenthal, um, a regular guest on First Voices Radio and Mario Maria, our colleague and the correspondent, a regular guest here, commentator and contributor to First Voices Radio. He's a journalist, author, and associate professor and chair, associate professor and chair of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the School of Communication at Hofstra University. We also go to Manuel Rosenthal being interviewed by Mario Murillo. One major reason is one block of reasons was the the uh, reform packages, policies from this government, uh, which included uh, a pension reform policy and tax reform. And that was in November 2019 uh, proposed, and the Duque government denied this completely. They said they would not implement, it wasn't in the plans, and this was being fabricated for electoral purposes. And 
In fact, the pension reform has been proposed and then the tax reform is being implemented. But now, of course, they're using the argument of COVID. But that's one reason. That's the main reason now, the main pretext. They're using the argument of COVID to implement the tax reform, that the country economically needs this reform in order to generate revenue to maintain a kind of a sustainable economy. That's correct. And it, it's called, in fact, it's even it's the, the shameless because they, they actually have labeled the, the reason why they want this tax reform, they call it solidarity with the poorest. So they're going to tax the middle class further. They're going to allow further evasion of taxes from the wealthiest. And the arguments are the middle class will pass resources to the poor through taxation, and the wealthy will generate employment, business, etc., and that will help the poor. But of course, they, they are taxing everything. They're taxing food, they're tra- taxing transportation, they're taxing uh, uh, gasoline, and all that will actually fall on the poor. The middle class has been impoverished dramatically throughout COVID. And so what they want to do is increase the proportion of impoverished people in the lower classes. And the solidarity comes from whom? It's it's impossible. So it's a disaster. But something that should be mentioned here is that never before in the history of Colombia, and that's an achievement, uh, have there been so many cases of open corruption And the theft of money from the elites and through the government has been absolutely horrendous. Let me ask you about the, again, this is the third major mobilization, and you've you've outlined some of the specific reasons for the mobilization. It is a multi-sector protest. We have students out there, you have peasant workers, you have indigenous communities, you have the labor movement, who who in, in many ways call this latest round. But it's, we don't really get that sense as I've been scanning the Colombian media, you don't really get a sense of that multi-sector characteristic of the mobilization. Why is that? Right. No, we get it's it's in fact what's going on, and and there are many reasons for for this. Another reason is well, something else is that that yes, the the tax reform is one of the reasons, but it's also the the increasing violence, the number of people assassinated since the signature of the the peace accord is is horrendous, more than a thousand, the number of massacres committed in the country and the documentation of these massacres being committed in collusion or with direct complicity of the Colombian government and armed forces. And so there's fear. There is an enormous amount of fear. The peace agreement is is a very important factor in this this invisible uh, leadership or this invisible coordination of the national strike. Why? The peace agreement was not a peace agreement. It wasn't. And what it really was is, in essence, access to resources and territories that were unavailable with the, the armed conflict. And as you can remember, the the model was the economic political model was not negotiated. So it was a peace agreement without teeth, but with a lot of money coming from outside of the country. And in essence, what it what it was, one can see the effects of the peace agreement in the Colombian Amazon. 
We were there for two months, Macarena. Uh, and that's the jewel of the crown. What they were after was, people may not know this in the US, but it's very important. But the entire Amazon region had been conceded to oil, oil corporations throughout the late last years of war. When the peace agreement was signed, the corporations move in. There were two major programs from the Colombian government, one against drug trafficking, eradication program, and the other one, a development program through participation of communities. Huge amount of uh, international funds for this, PEDET and PENIS. Uh, the pennies was for the, I'll just give you that example to be brief. A large amount of money was going to be given to those who would eradicate. The precondition was eradication, they did. So they registered 130,000 families. And that meant that they were successful in getting rid of all of the cocaine in the country that they had documented. But then they didn't give them the money. They didn't generate the technical support for them to develop alternatives. And so less than 10% of these was achieved. So the result was they pushed them into growing coca again. Yeah. So Colombia is producing now, according to Ricardo Vargas Mesa, nobody knows as much. Colombia is producing 92% of the global cocaine production, 92%. And most of it still goes to the US, but it's 60%. More than 40% is going to other markets. And so these regions are being filled with cocaine, filled with uh, agribusiness plantations, oil and other extractivist projects, and the communities that had organizations that allowed them to survive through war and construct alternatives were divided into pieces with the promises of the peace agreement. There's no doubt that wasn't intended. So you get a, a tax reform, you get the anger, and who is going to coordinate this? Add to this the fact that people, most people are fed up with having vanguards from Bogota deciding when you move, what you move for, and what is the correct program. So it may be better this way in some regards, but it's also very difficult to coordinate something. It's also very difficult for the media to understand those dynamics, at least the traditional mainstream corporate run private media in Colombia that tends to look at things with a completely different lens. Uh, they don't understand those dynamics that are happening on the ground, or if they do understand them, they completely ignore them. Let me just remind listeners, we're speaking with Manuel Rosenthal, a longtime human rights uh, and social justice activist in Colombia, a physician based in Cauca, Colombia, but he's uh, traveling all around the country. He's the founding contributor and, and one of the uh, brainchilds behind Pueblos en Camino, which is a transnational website that has all sorts of great work and information and mobilizing stories about mobilization on a global scale. I did want to take the crisis to to Colombia, to Cauca in particular, and because we talk about it here a lot, the indigenous community in particular, and how the, the, the dynamic that you described has impacted directly the organizing and mobilizing capacity and unbelievable work that the indigenous movement in Cauca in particular has done for 50 years, how that has uh, destabilized that. The indigenous movement in Cauca, the strongest indigenous movement in Colombia and one of the strongest in Latin America and the heart of resistance in Colombia for many years for all sectors, as you know well, is divided. 
and it is divided because of the targeted influence of several se sectors. One, one has to recognize the perverse ability of the government long term. And here's where one can say there's one policy, government policy, that has been successful in dividing indigenous people, particularly Cauca. That policy is called drug trafficking. The two sides of the equation are the component of a single policy. War on drugs and drug trafficking production are two sides of one policy. Both grow simultaneously. So in Colombia and in Cauca, what you saw, if you drive from the airport in Cali through the Cauca Valley into the northern Cauca, what you see in the mountain chain of the central mountain chain is lights as though these are neighborhoods. What's in there are crops of marijuana lighted at night. And this has grown since 2008 till now in, a, in an amazing way. If I see it, anyone sees it, and the army sees it, and they've done nothing about it. But neither have the authorities in Northern Cauca. So there is complicity when, with When you these. say the authorities, you're talking about the indigenous authorities. Indigenous authorities, exactly. So they, they do nothing about this stuff. It's been growing. There's no doubt there's corruption among some leaders because of this. Now, with this type of production come, no doubt, armed actors. And comes a cultural change which within the communities. And you go now and they're drinking whiskey. They have big weapons, big uh, vehicles, and uh, they make a lot of money on this stuff. So this thing entered massively Northern Cauca, and then this debilitated the process and divided Creek. So there were those communities so that... People know the Creek being... Oh, the yeah. The, the organization, the major organization, the Consejo Regional Indígena del Cauca, the Regional Indigenous Council of Cauca, which is the founding organization of the indigenous movement in Colombia. So there is no, no political stance on drug trafficking from indigenous peoples. There isn't any, none. And that's already telling. But then what happened? There are some communities that in a collective assembly, which is their strength, decided they would not engage in this stuff and they would not engage with any armed actor and they would not accept government armed forces or programs funding to get into their territories because they want to protect their territories and their ways of life. Amongst these, Caldono, Satamaquiwe in northern Cauca. Caldono is the heart of the, the NAS NASA, the indigenous heart. And they decided to protect their territory from this. And it's amazing how they've done. So now they're threatened by FARC dissidents that feed the war machine through drug trafficking, drug traffickers, governments. So everybody's against them. And other indigenous leaders who expect them to allow trafficking to go through that territory. And they say no. So that led last week or two weeks ago to the assassination of a leader Sandra Liliana Peña Choque. Sandra Liliana was a young woman that was assassinated after beginning eradication. Now think of this for a minute. I want to leave this, in, if nothing else, in people's minds. For indigenous peoples, coca is sacred. Growing coca is important. Now that indigenous communities have to eradicate coca, tells you what has happened with the sacred plant. It's been transformed into a part of a chain that produces millions and millions that return to the country 
and go directly to the elites of the country and to the Colombian state. Those returning funds are irrelevant to the war on drugs. They're not looked after. But the indigenous peasants that on the ground engage in stopping or producing coca and cocaine, that's where the war is launched, in order to promote it. So this Satama understood, Caldono understood this clear. In October of 2019, another indigenous leader was killed, Cristina Bautista, and she was fighting the very same fight. Edwin Dagua, another leader in Northern Cauca, was also murdered for the same reason, and nothing happened. But Liliana was killed in Caldono. And so what happened was everybody from different indigenous territories came in in a minga, in a collective action, to eradicate and expel the armed actors. So this is the answer to the question. The confrontation here is not between indigenous and other forces. It is between a way of life with the territories, a good way of life to protect life and engage ourselves in territories again and not allow territories and people to become merchandise, whether through drug trafficking or anything else, oil, uh, monocultures, whatever it is. And on the other side, the Colombian state, all states in the world, and the new mafia fascist orders at the end spectrum from the liberal to the uh, savage capitalism, all that spectrum has one purpose, transform territories and people into merchandise. Well, the NASA in Caldono have said no. The big question is how many people in Colombia, even through the strike, are willing and are capable to say no to this. And that's where we are now. Manuel, I wish we had more time, but let me ask you just quickly, how with the current crisis that you're describing, it's a political, economic, social crisis, the ongoing assassinations of leaders, et cetera, it's all happening at the same time that the COVID crisis, the pandemic, is also escalating in the country. How do you see the next couple of months playing out in the country? Um, some of your biggest concerns, if you can just kind of say yeah, that. I, that we have. In, as COVID extends, what we see is the assassination of leaders extend as well. And in territories that under, are under a state of siege, controlled by the Colombian army, there are more assassinations of civilians. The hope is that people are beginning to see the links, join the dots, and are beginning to see drug trafficking is not one problem over there, and the uh, COVID another problem over here, etc. So I'll summarize. I want to put three points through. One, a return to normality is a major problem. Normality was leading to collision, catastrophe. And we didn't have a healthcare system. We didn't have education. We didn't have justice. We had nothing. So going back to that is hell. Two, somebody's benefiting from this structural adjustment program through COVID. And those who are benefiting from it are becoming visible. So, so we have to see them and stop them. And three, community alternatives outside of the state are not poor alternatives for the poor, but actually not options, but necessities for everybody. And not only in Colombia, all over the world. We won't have a healthcare system state run. Either we run it, or we won't have it. And that was Manuel Rosenthal being interviewed by Mario Murillo, both regular guests, commentators, and contributors to First Voices Radio. Thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. I'm Tio Kuzen, Ghost Horse.
Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm There's a killer on the road His brain is squirming like a toad Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man 